Welcome, everybody, to episode number 18 of The Hopeful Majority. Today's guest will be Victor Xi. And the question is, what does a Gen Z Democrat think about the state of our politics today? Um, it's going to be a fascinating conversation every week. Remember, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content. Last week, we had Vivek Ramaswamy on. We've got some amazing guests coming up. The hopeful majority is growing. Remember, we're trying to fight outrage, build nuance, because this platform is about creating a space for productive dialogue across lines of difference. And most importantly, you know who the key ingredient to that is? You. We need all of us together to be advocating for a world of nuance in the face of the outrage industrial complex. I'm excited for this conversation. I'll see you in the monologue right now. So the reason why I wanted to have Victor on today is because I was at this event recently and this conservative person came up to me and he said, man, those Democrats are insane. How could a young person possibly grow up to be a Democrat? And I thought, well, who better to answer that question than my friend Victor, who's a prominent influencer online. He's a prominent Democrat. He supports the Biden campaign and the Biden and the Harris ticket in 2024. And I think he has very nuanced views and he really cares about productive dialogue. And here's the kicker. He's 21 years old and he's going to senior year at UCLA. And so I thought, I want to have this conversation. But honestly, the question that motivated this conversation was a question that many people ask me um, as I work with young people across the country, especially many Republicans ask me, which is why do young people support Democratic Party? Um, what does a Gen Z Democrat think about the state of our politics? Why are they who they are? And I think it's a fascinating prospect to think about because last week we had Vivek Ramaswamy on, who's one of the leading GOP contenders. And you'll notice about the show that we go back and forth and we get a wide variety of perspectives and people from across the political spectrum, because I think fundamentally the challenge of our moment is not that we all disagree on the how, but we all disagree on the what. And we all agree on the how of having conversations, having dialogues, listening to each other. And so I wanted to bring on Victor. And I think this conversation will really focus on three sort of key components. The first is his upbringing. Why did he become who he is today? He's 21 years old. He could be doing so many different things. Why is he out there on Twitter with 250,000 followers and Instagram 10,000 followers focusing on building a platform where he's supporting the Democratic Party? Exposes himself to a lot of criticism, a lot of flack, as he said uh, towards the end of the conversation that, He's often called the Chinese Communist Party spy with by people that disagree with them. And you know whether or not you agree or disagree with his policies, I think it's very important to understand why somebody so young is interested about getting involved in our politics. What motivates them? What drives them? So that's the first piece of this conversation. The second part of this conversation is why the Democratic Party? Last week, we had Vivek Ramaswamy on, on the Republican side, and Vivek talked about why he believes strongly in the Republican Party, ideals of meritocracy, ideals of running not from something, but to something. Um, he focuses a lot on the fact that the Democratic Party is focused on censorship and that he feels like a lot of people's liberties are at stake. And when I spend a lot of time in those rooms and those conversations on college campuses and high schools within Republican rooms, I hear a lot of that. And so I'm very curious, well, Let's bring on a young Democrat and curious, why does he think what he thinks? Um, you know, there's so many different avenues in our lives, uh, different age levels, different brackets that often will shape how we approach issues, how we approach different policies. And let's get to the nuances of those things, because if we can understand why you're a Democrat, why you're a Republican, why you're an independent, why you don't care <laughs> about politics, frankly, whatever that question or your category is, it helps us better understand what makes this democracy work. 
who are the people that I actually live with in this democracy? Why vote? Why participate when you don't know why somebody's a Democrat or Republican? If we can actually understand their motivation, I think that's the key to unlocking common ground. That's the key to breaking through. And it's something that I think Victor will talk a lot about in this conversation, which is when you talk at people's values, when you talk to people's convictions, when you understand their story, the fact that we all have parents and siblings and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and friends. And, you know, we also are, are scared of similar things. And, and, you know, we have basic human emotion. Uh, it can go a long way in helping us break past what I call those rigid boundaries. It can go a long way towards disrupting the conflict entrepreneurs, the profiteers, the people that are making money off of our ability to turn against each other. And so I'm always very curious when we bring on somebody that is very strongly partisan to get an understanding for why. I think the answer to the why not only unlocks the key to finding hope and purpose in our lives, but I think it's the key to finding an answer to this fabric that is the complicated American democratic experiment. And the last thing that we're going to focus this conversation on is 2024, is President Biden, is asking some of the critiques that I think a lot of people have of President Biden around his age, around his policy accomplishments, around his agenda. We're going to get into a lot of that because I think those questions get at the core crux of why a lot of people have a lot of discontent with the Democratic Party. We're going to challenge Victor a little bit. And to his credit, and this is the last thing I'll say, to his credit, frankly, He's done a much better job, I think, than this conversation about speaking across lines of difference than I've seen seasoned political pundits do. And this is what I'll leave us with. Gen Z is here, ready to have productive conversations, ready to role model good behavior, ready to demonstrate the fact that our democratic polarization is unsustainable. And it is a damn shame that political leaders in their 70s and 60s and 80s and 50s, seasoned veterans, people that have gone across communities and families, can't role model productive disagreement, the ability to disagree better, to listen across differences and empathize, and yet a 21-year-old can. That's where we are in our politics, and we have to fix that. And us young people are ready to model a better vision for our politics, a better understanding of not what, but how. And that's what we do at Bridge USA every day. I meet young people across the country that are standing there saying, yes, we disagree on a lot of things. No, this is not about kumbaya. Yes, I have very strong ideological convictions, and yet there's something more important than those ideological convictions. And that is the state of this democracy, this country. That is your humanity. That is the fact that the way in which we disagree matters a lot. And that's what I ultimately hope to convey through this conversation, conversation I had with my friend Isabel Brown, who's a young Gen Z conservative that you can see on episode five or six, I think, or my friend Sophie Barron, who runs a conversation which is on episode five or four. You got young people from across the political spectrum modeling productive disagreement, good behavior, empathy, listening, not just for some kumbaya sake, but because we know that the cornerstone of our democracy requires us to understand that we have to live with people that are all different than ourselves, that have different ideas, different beliefs. Remember, America, 330 million people, all with different backgrounds, different perspectives, different ethnicities, trying to make it work. That's exciting. That's an amazing challenge, and we're here for it. And I hope that people that listen to this hopeful majority that are older than us look to our model. Because people like Victor, while you might disagree with a lot of his policies and his partisanship, I think we can all get behind people like him and Isabel and Sophie and all the others that are trying to demonstrate that we have very strong beliefs, but we have a greater conviction. That is to this American experiment, which requires us to listen, think freely, understand each other, empathize across lines of difference. And so with that, my friends.
Here's a conversation with Victor Shi. Victor Shi, welcome to the Hopeful Majority, sir. Manu, it's so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. So I, we were just talking beforehand that you're out in Chicago right now. You're going back to school tomorrow, UCLA. Before we get into anything, I think people should know the fact that you're a super well-spoken uh, young leader, like a lot of young people we know, and you're still on campus. So put all those dots together. How did you get to where you are right now? And what's going on? Why aren't you just spending all your time in the classroom? Well, first of all, right back at you. Um, I remember the first time we met was, um, I think, at a bridge-sponsored event with um, Equal Citizens. And so it's great to see you all these years later. But I really got my starting in politics back in eighth grade. Um, I often tell the story. I mean, I wasn't influenced by, you know, a lot of people are influenced, I think, by their parents in terms of their political ideology. I was influenced by my teacher. My teacher was just lecturing the political spectrum one day before the 2016 Iowa caucuses. And she just told all of us, you know, what it meant to be a Democrat would have meant to be a Republican. And then at the end, she said, you know, as young people, you can all make a difference as long as you get involved. And so I sort of internalized that. And ever since sort of, um, you know, have been on campaigns, have been involved with sort of like the youth, you know, mobilization uh, landscape and also with the media landscape. And so it's been just part like knowing that you can be a part of something bigger than yourself has been really meaningful. But on campus, I, you know, the West Coast is great, as you no, probably right. as someone from Chicago, the weather is great, the, you know, no winters, the food is great. And, you know, I spend some of my time in the classroom, but a lot of it's, you know, it's so different from the Midwest. And I really enjoy that aspect of um, LA and the West Coast of like, just never having to put on like a big coat or having to worry about snow. It's a great <laughs> part of it. You're, you're not in the Windy City anymore. I, I'm so curious, no. you're talking about in eighth, in eighth grade, um, your teacher said, what it means to be a Democrat, what it means to be a Republican. Do you remember by any chance what she said? Because I'm sure that that had, a, that had an impact on, on sort of how you thought about what you wanted to do and what sort of side of the aisle you wanted to do your work on. Absolutely. So, I mean, it, it was... A lot of it through the context of like who was running. So I remember she was telling us about Trump and what kind of he stood for and how at the time it was very, you know, populist. And, and she actually compared Bernie Sanders to Trump in many ways that, you know, some of the similarities between you know, the populist messages and um, just tapping into sort of that, you know, kind of working class background. And so that was really fascinating to see the kind of those two presented. And then Hillary Clinton, she kind of, you know, described more as like an establishment type Democrat. But, you know, some of the things that she emphasized just part of the Republican Party is, you know, the focus on the economy. Um, a lot of the things with Trump at the time with, you know, trying to ban, you know, Mexicans from coming through the border with the wall. And then on the other side, it was more so like, more like equality and love and social issues. Right. And that I think was really interesting to hear her talk about. But I would say, I wasn't really particularly moved by that part, but it was more sort of her telling us just as young people, just getting involved and making your voices heard and offering sort of a new way of kind of thinking about kind of what do you want to do with your life than at the time I was playing video games. And so that was interesting <laughs> to hear about. You know, what's, what's fascinating about the story is that you could have picked up, as you said, video games or so many of the other things that people are doing in eighth grade, including myself. And what I find particularly interesting is that you have your teacher talk about this, the Iowa caucuses are happening. And people often ask me like as a young person, and it feels weird me saying young person since you're younger than me. So you're like outflanking me right now. But I'm I'm 24. How old are you right now? How, how old are you? 21. 21. Okay, you're 21. Okay. So I, people say like, you know, give us an insight into into the mindset of somebody that's Gen Z, let's say older Gen Z or mid Gen Z like you or I. And one of the things I often talk about is, you know, I was like born around um, 9-11, right? So I was two years old when 9-11 happened. Um, I was wow. in in uh, sixth, seventh grade during the financial crash. 
then uh, I was just graduating from high school when 2016 happened in the Trump election. And then 2020, when we're graduating college, the COVID and the pandemic, uh, the January 6th riots, so not a great sample size of democracy. And you were in eighth grade when, when President Trump got elected. And so when people often say like, why are people in our generation so skeptical um, of democracy or of politics or progress. That's often what I try to show is a little bit of the mindset. How would you sort totally. of describe totally. like the mindset or the sort of the formative things that have shaped people in, and that are engaged in our generation? So you're actually right on. And, and I, and a lot of what you said is sort of how I describe this generation of people, which is first, I don't think there's one sort of way to kind of nail down Gen Z just because there's so many diverse issues that we care about. There are so many different lived experiences. I mean, it's the most diverse generation racially, socioeconomically, just in, in so many different ways. And so it's hard to kind of view us as a monolith. And I think that's what people right. often mistake. But I think to your point about sort of our outlook on our political system. I mean, we really never knew a time when it felt like kind of we could be unified. I mean, I, it was just, we, we come on the heels of um, the anniversary of 9-11. I was just thinking about like the way that people who live through 9-11 are coming together all these years later and still remembering that moment of coming together as a country. And I think about all of the things that we've experienced as you know a generation from COVID to January 6th to all of these sort of really big kind of world-changing events, but they're isn't that sort of same sense of unity that I feel like probably existed back during 9-11. And so I think that's sort of just looking at our political system and always one of kind of dysfunction and disunity and never being able to come together is sort of how I think of kind of this generation, how it's always sort of, we feel like it's up to us to really change the way that things are. Um, and, and I would say also, I mean, like to your point of kind of how are how we view all these different issues? I mean, there like, like I mentioned before, I mean, there isn't one sort of unified way to look at these issues. I think at the end of the day, we just want kind of core values. I mean, things like more representation in government, things like you know trying to make progress on these issues that affect all of us, like climate change and um, you know school shootings. Um, but maybe the process is a little bit different, but I think overall, sort of the values of wanting to live a better and safer life and have more representation is something this generation is really hungry for. Mm. So I, I definitely want to put a pin, I think, in this notion that there might be a lot of values and issues that unite our generation. As you said, I, we might disagree on the process, but we might be in agreement on the what. So I want to get to that. But before that, I would love for you to introduce yourself officially to people so that we can contextualize why I think you're such a good voice, especially given that we just had Vivek Ramaswamy on from the GOP side last week. Like, take us back to eighth grade, Iowa caucuses, you're getting involved. What happened then? And what about politics get, kept you coming back? Because there's so many other things you could have probably done. Oh, for sure. And, and definitely, I mean, um, both of my parents have no involvement in politics. My dad is an engineer. My mom's a financial analyst. They're both actually Republicans. And I, I, I don't know, maybe it was my young idealistic self. I got involved on a local congressional campaign for um, Congressman Brad Schneider. And I just started making phone calls, started knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that feeling. I, like, it's really hard to describe, but there's no feeling better than talking to someone who might be undecided and giving them information and talking to, like asking them what they care about, listening to them, being able to meet them where they are. And then at the end of the conversation, them saying to you, you changed my mind or, you know, you, you know, you have my vote now. And it's just like, that's that those sort of moments are so special. And like I said before, like knowing that you're a part of something bigger than yourself um, is, mm -hmm. I think, something that's really rare. And I think in politics, like, especially being on a campaign where there's so much sort of, you know, like trauma bonding in a sense, like you just are all like, 
you know, kind of in the mud, trying to win an election like that was really awesome as just someone young and someone who's kind of making his way into politics. And then just in high school, I mean, I, I think having people around me like my teacher in eighth grade, but also my AP government teacher senior year, um, he told me, you know, as long as you turn 18 by election day, you can run to become a delegate for any presidential candidate. And that sort of nudge huh. and that sort of empowerment from my teacher was really, I think, meaningful. But I think along every step along the way, I've had I've been fortunate enough to have people who have sort of provided that nudge for me. And uh, and I think civics and politics and the sense of participating in your community was sort of institutionalized in high school and college. UCLA does a great job of, you know, making sure that everyone is registered to vote on orientation day um, and, and having, you know, people who just instill that sort of civic engagement in you. I think I've been really fortunate enough to have beyond sort of my immediate family. Um, and that sort of kept me going and, and knowing that, you know, you can be a part of this system and people are there to kind of provide that support for you. And I'm grateful for that. So this is where I'll save you some pain and tell people that you should go to Victor's Twitter bio right now to get a better understanding of him, because I won't put him on the spot to force him to talk to you about his biography. But he is one of he was, according to your Twitter, you're the youngest Biden delegate at that time when you were 18 and you'd ran for that position. And you can see when you go through Victor's platform, I mean, he's done a lot on this front. And so it's fascinating for me to hear that. I want to take a quick step back, which is funny. You said you know, the trauma bonding of politics is what really drew me to the process. And I could just hear somebody listening who's like, man, Victor was, <laughs> was really love the pain of politics. But there's, but, there's, but there's something else that you said that I actually think is on a more serious note, fascinating. You said you love the thrill of talking to somebody that's undecided and trying to get them to change their mind or to give them the information. Yeah. And I, this is something that I can't, I, I need your help in grappling with because I feel like the phrase change your mind is something that we've completely abandoned. Um, I think people have completely given up on the people's capacity to be persuaded. What's your take on that? So I come, and by the way, I, in my, I mean, this is like the whole point of your organization is to bring both sides together and somehow find dialogue in there, which I admire so much. So thank you for what you're doing. But I, in terms of persuasion, I mean, I often think about it in the way, you know, organizing, I think, is very a lot of the times, at least the traditional model I've been told is, you know, you try to reach the most number of voter contacts and you try to, you know, knock on the most doors, make the phone, most phone calls. But something that I thought was fascinating that really started to take off in 2020, but especially in 2022, is this term relational organizing, which is more you come mm -hmm. at the you come at it from the sense of, OK, like, I want to understand you as a human being. Like, I want to understand what you care about, what motivates you as a person, rather than asking off the bat, you know, who do you support in this election or what are your politics? Like starting off as like, like, what do you care about? What, you know, is your life? You know, just trying to understand you at a human level, I think is really important. And I think something that we lose sight of a lot in this kind of political sphere that we live in, I think so much of it is kind of rushing toward, you know, what your political ideology is. And if it doesn't agree with you, then you immediately dismiss them. And I just don't think, you know, that sustainable way to run any sort of campaign or sort of, uh, you know, a functioning political society. And I think just understanding people from who they are and from a human perspective really does a lot in listening and hearing what they say and then, you know, responding in the appropriate way. But that sort of relational organizing, I think, is something that I hope will um, sort of be sustained. But that's sort of how I view things. It's just not rushing toward politics, just understanding the person as at a human level and, um, and then going from there and not dismissing what they have to say. I could hear somebody right now, Victor, that's skeptical being like, you know, relational organizing. I've also heard it called deep canvassing, for example, you know, where yes, you're yes. going into a community and I don't know, treating people like people, like actually talking to them and, and listening to them and hearing their aspirations. I could hear somebody skeptical saying, you know, there is no chance that 
that has any possibility for success right now, given how polarized the climate is, given how polarized the media climate is. And then as a result, you'll often see a move towards that mobilization strategy, which is forget persuasion, let's mobilize our base. Um, and, and, and to me, it seems like that's pushing us to this never ending arms race. How do you think through that critique of relational organizing? You know, I, I understand it. I, I think there are definitely, you know, that's sort of like the broad overview, but I think in spe like specific conversations, one of the things I, I try to do at least back, back in 2020 when I was organizing is, you know, sure, when you meet someone with differing political ideology, I think that at least my first instinct um, before, you know, being trained on it would be, you know, well, you know, that's a voter. But I think really making sure and always kind of telling yourself again that this person you know, you may not agree on, say, an ex I'm just going to take like abortion, like that's a very extreme position. Mm -hmm. I think that's something where it's not as easy for me to persuade someone on that issue. But I think if sure. you can find, for example, like democracy or like elections, like, you know, like asking them, you know, if they are, for instance, if they are skeptical at January 6th, asking them like, you know, what are the, you know, venues of, or mediums of information that have persuaded you to have this sort of outlook? And once you get to kind of realize that they listen to certain, you know, outlets, they have been persuaded by certain evidence, then, you know, sometimes all it takes is, you know, nudging them toward, well, have you considered this? Or, you know, asking them a simple question of, well, have you seen this article? Or might I be able to kind of point you in that direction? And sometimes mm -hmm. it's baby steps. And, and I think that is often also something that people, I think, kind of, when they organize or when they do deep canvassing that you can't really change someone's mind in just one conversation. That's why organizing is a constant thing. That's why you have to build teams where you're constantly talking to people and you're making the same phone calls and you're, you know, talking to your, your team. But I think kind of taking it step by step and pointing that person in just that sort of direction, often thinking about, you know, you know, giving them the light they need to hopefully kind of reach that destination. But I think it's more of a journey than rather than, than kind of just one um, immediate kind of conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, it's frustrating at this moment for me doing the work we do at Bridge USA, where we're sort of bringing together these dialogues is I think uh, people immediately assume that when you think about relationship building or talking to somebody across lines of difference, the only three issues that are ever going to define that entire human is like abortion, gun control, and, right. and maybe something that's deep in the culture war. And yes, those are very important issues, but like we're complex beings with so much around us. And, and I struggle with this notion that I think so many people in our generation, I think in some ways, at least I've seen this are oftentimes we're quick to write off the other, whatever the quote unquote other might be, whether you're on the left or the right, or whether you're um, uh, of a certain race or identity group, we're so likely to write off the other because we assume that they're completely unreachable and defined by these three or four issue sets. Like not every conversation you talk to has to be with one with like Tucker Carlson. Like <laughs> there's a right. lot of people before you get to Tucker. So how do you think through that? Do you, do you find that as a sentiment in our generation at all? I, for the most part, I haven't had any immediate conversations like that, but I, I would say in terms of just kind of, I do think there's a lot of like general apathy among young people and, you know, going to school in LA, one of the things I notice often is people there don't really care about politics in the same way yeah. that someone in DC might. But I also think one of the ways, you know, I think about a lot of the times entry points in terms of how people can just sort of make that first step to caring about something. And I've actually found using celebrities is a really great way of like, oh, like, yep. hey, did you see what Taylor Swift posted recently? She posted her story on her Instagram of, you know, registering people to vote. And, you know, just getting that people to think about, oh, well, like I can, I listen to Taylor Swift or I listen to XYZ artists. This XYZ artist made some sort of political statement. And I don't ask them, you know, do you agree with it? I don't ask, I don't try to assert my political ideology on them. I just ask them, hey, Leon, did you see, you know, 
XYZ rapper made this comment about an issue. What do you think of that? And then like going from there, but sort of like going from this place of like, I'm curious what your thoughts are. And then having that conversation rather than, okay, like here are my beliefs. I'm trying to impose them on you. Or, you know, I want to know what you think about this issue. Just asking them, you know, did you see this? And that's a very simple way of getting them to kind of care about an issue because they see someone who they are, they really enjoy seeing commenting on that issue, if that makes sense. It's so funny. It's like the way you're talking about this is just like how you talk to normal people. I feel like we've complex complexified <laughs> politics, democracy when like, it's, yeah, it's like, okay, how do I talk to somebody I disagree with? I don't know. Show them things. Talk about things that you might yes, agree yeah. on. It's it's not that complicated. And yet I think we're so quick to give up on that process in the political world. Um, I want to take a quick step I mean, back. You mentioned your parents quick. are. Yeah, go ahead. I was. Just, I mean, if I can make a quick point about, I think one of the I, I'm we're probably gonna get into this a little bit later but one of the yeah. recent examples of this is so I got invited to go on Fox News and I was very hesitant to go on Fox News just because I had this conception in my mind that it was you know very right wing and um I think a lot of Democrats you know for instance Elizabeth Warren has a strict no Fox policy um whereas you mm-hmm. see many people like Pete Buttigieg going on Fox and I think you have a ri- wide array of kind of views on what Fox is and you know whether or not you should go on it but I think a lot of the people on the Democratic side when they go on Fox. They'd like to make it, you know, very antagonistic. They like to attack that audience. But one of the things I think people get wrong about Fox is, you know, you're trying to reach the people who hopefully are just kind of walking by the TV screen and just kind of look up at Fox. And, you know, you're trying to reach them and you don't persuade people by being antagonistic or by attacking them for believing in, you know, the big lie or for believing in what they believe in. You want to try to come from from a place of sort of humility and respect. And, you know, I'm here not to change your mind, but I'm here to just just to present some facts and just to present, you know, what I believe, you know, is a different way of looking at things um, and, and doing it from a place of, you know, calmness and, and you know, not falling into that sort of yelling and back and forth. I just don't think that's a way to persuade people. But there is a lot of people on our side who do view Fox as sort of like, you know, if you go in there, you have to be loud, you have to be, you know, assertive, you have to be very, you know, um, uh, just it's like a shouting ring, but I just don't think that's the case. But there's a lot of that, I think, on our side. Well, you said a lot of that is on your side, that sort of sentiment. What was your experience like at Fox News? I was actually going to ask you that because there are a few of your interviews. What was your experience like? For, honestly, for the most part, very civil. I mean, like, granted, I'm not going on like, you know, Laura Ingram or Jesse Waters. I don't know what that's like. But at least in my experience, I mean, the team has been very nice. It's been very fair questioning by um, Dana Perino and Bill Hammer, which is the only show I've been on. But um, it, it's v- genuinely like, you know, what as the Demo- as a young Democrat, what do you think? And then I'm often paired with a young Republican. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And it's never been a shouting match. It's always been sort of just us coming to the table with, you know, what we've, uh, you know, what our outlook is. And um, it's never really been, it's never escalated to the, what I imagine Fox to be. And I think that's been a big surprise. Do you think there's a particular reason why they keep having you back? I actually think because Fox genuinely wants to have the other side. I mean, um, if you look at Fox's most popular show, it's The Five, and there are four Republicans, one Democrat. It's the highest rated show on Fox. And um, I genuinely think Fox does try to bring their audience a different perspective, at least especially for daytime programming and also for sort of like the before 7 p.m. hour. I do think there is an appetite. If you look at sort of the demographic breakdown of Fox, yes, it's older people, but it's also a lot of independent folks. And um, there are some left-leaning folks who do watch Fox. And I think they aren't as extreme as some people made them out to be. How do you think MSNBC does? I think MSNBC is more, le- definitely further left. I, I don't 
often see the sort of willingness to have on the other side as much as I do perhaps with like CNN, which I think presents itself mm. more as like a neutral kind of both sides network. Um, now, there, granted, there are some people like I think they just signed a deal with John Kasich, who represents you know that sort of, you know, never Trump wing of the party. But you don't really see them platforming someone who comes from like a Turning Point USA background or someone who's like a Ben Shapiro, like that sort of equivalent. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think MSNBC is a little bit more silo to the left. Do you think they should? I mean, I, I think it depends. And I often wrestle with this and because I think it's so hard to, you know, grapple with, for instance, I mean, the other week, um, Ari Melber had on Bill Maher and, you know, Bill Maher, you know, say what you want about Bill Maher. He has some problematic viewpoints, but I think the only kind of way that you can have someone like that on or someone who does, you know, from like Donald Trump on, you know, Kristen Welker had on Donald Trump is if I think you really push back against their lies. And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, to, to Fox's credit, whenever I'm on Fox, they also find a way to challenge me on my assertions. And, and that makes sense. But I think you have to be able to kind of push back against that sort of narrative if you have on someone, you know, with really, I don't want to say grotesque views, but someone who believes in what they do. So, that that's fascinating because you know, and I had asked this of Vivek last week, Vivek yeah. Ramaswamy, which was when I'm talking to Vivek in in person when we're having a conversation, we're on the podcast. He sounds really persuasive and also, frankly, just a nice person. You know, there's a lot of conversation happening, we're having good yeah. dialogue. Uh, very different than what he's like on Twitter. You know, uh, I spend a lot of time with whoever's coming on the Hopeful Majority to really learn about you, like your background. So I study your Twitter, study everybody else's Twitter, and I'm like, I'm talking to Victor. I'm like. Man, you know, you're you're like not agreeable just for the sake of being agreeable. I'm sure if I said something that you disagree with, you'd stand up for that. I think that's the point of this conversation is let's have healthy disagreement. And yet Absolutely. you're approaching this in a pretty understanding way. And yet I have to ask you, because you know, when I sometimes see the Twitter feed, it's very different in terms of tone from who you are right now. And this is not just a you thing. This this is something that I see across the board. Um, it's something that I've seen myself doing why do you think there's a difference between how we and i don't want to just say you i mean how we as people show up on a platform like twitter as opposed to you know an in-person conversation or a podcast or whatever the case might be and you could also disagree with the assertion that maybe you are the same person but yeah i i actually really haven't thought much about that i mean i i would say i'm definitely more pointed on twitter especially toward like media organizations and and what republicans mm -hmm. say um but I don't know. I, I I do feel like, at least for my Twitter, what I try to do through my Twitter is, and I often do these threads because I don't think you can totally encapsulate things from just a one kind of, I don't know what the character limit now on Twitter is, but like 280 character kind of tweet. I, I do think it's important to provide, you know, your sources and to provide background on what's happening. And I try to do that for the most part, but I would say I'm definitely less afraid, I think, to call out people on Twitter. Maybe it's mm -hmm. something about being online. And something about Twitter now that scares me a lot is, you know, with the new kind of checkmark platform, like, or checkmark policy, you know, there's just this sort of like anonymity, I think, behind a screen that I think being in person just doesn't really replicate so much. But I think being online, at least for me, I don't know, I, I, I tend to find that Twitter is more like you can throw those punches, but at least for me, I try to provide that context whenever I can and, and providing those sources and providing that background information, I think is important because a lot of Twitter is very back and forth and very, you know, one side attacks the other and everyone's sort of in their own camps. Um, but I don't know, I, 
I've never really thought of my different personalities online versus um, in person, which is fascinating to hear you say that. Well, I mean, I, I'm catching up with you after three and a half years, and I, I know you pretty well from an online standpoint. And I think yeah. a lot of folks that might be listening to this have seen you online. And I also um, know you in person. And I, I think they're, we're all, I think, in some ways guilty of this. And I feel weird even talking about this because I sense myself doing it. And I feel like a part of it is just the incentive structure that exists online, where to win in a Twitter discourse, you have to be argumentative. You have to punch. Totally, and yes. who am I to say don't punch? Punching is important. Like disagreement is the engine of democracy. You need to have disagreement. But I feel like part of the reason why so many people in our generation are just completely apathetic or disengages because it just looks like a shit show online like yeah, how do you yeah. think about those dynamics so i um okay so i, I guess i i i often get trolls and i often get people who you know come after you know my twitter handle and and one of the things i don't necessarily buy into is you know a lot of people i think who i see on twitter when they when they get people who disagree with them it's immediately like block or it's immediately well like i'm just gonna you know it's very i, I don't know what the right word for it maybe um it's like throw uh, the walls out. Like yeah. yes, yeah, like you, you, yes, exactly, and 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 you don't really have that dialogue. But I actually, you know, I don't mind having that conversation with someone who I disagree with on Twitter. There have been plenty of people on Twitter who I disagree with who you have that conversation with, and it's rare to find those moments where you can kind of go back and forth in a tweet exchange. But I would say I don't know, like a lot of that I think happens for me at least through dms i mean you you have those conversations mm -hmm. i don't think through you know like the spotlight a lot of people will dm me or a lot of people might you know say something in the comments and i'll dm them and say hey you know i'd love to learn more about what you think about this or you know let's have this conversation but not in that sort of you know public forum i've never been really a fan of that but i'm definitely happy mm -hmm. to, i think it's much better to have those conversations through a dm platform but when it comes to trolls and when it comes to people who do who do go into yeah. comments it's always a matter of well okay is this person commenting for the sake of you know do they want to push the dialogue and do they want to, you know, I guess have that conversation it's about the intent. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the intent, or is it just like, I'm just attacking you because I view you as, you know, you know, someone on the left and who, you know, is a snowflake Democrat or something. But if that person is generally coming to the conversation and saying, you know, look, your points are well taken, but I disagree because of X, Y, Z, then I'm much more willing to have that conversation. I think that's the type of disagreement that I much rather prefer us having online or through DMS. Do you think that, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, uh, online sort of social media in general uh, has been good or productive for our democracy? And I know that's a loaded question because there's a lot of angles and dimensions there. Uh, and there's a lot of back and forth you can have on the values of having online platforms, especially in democratic countries. But how do you approach that? Because it's something that I get asked a lot as a Gen Zer, like, you know, y'all, you know, the people often say y'all are totally digitally native. Um, you must love Twitter or whatever the case, Instagram, whatever. What's your diagnosis of the platforms and their impact on the health of our democracy? I mean, I think Twitter is great because at least for me, I don't really have another like platform in which I can get news real time in such a kind of fast way. And I think for that reason, mm -hmm. like, I think it's really important to know like who I'm following and to make sure that the people who I'm following are trusted sources. Um, but but I also don't want to say that, you know, this generation is totally immune from, you know, the, the privies of misinformation, disinformation. There is a real problem, I think, with sort of the lack of information literacy and um, the overall kind of lack of, I, I think, things that schools do to teach this generation about how to, you know, think online and not to fall prey to, you know, these headlines. But I think for me, you know, Twitter, I, 
I would say is a value add as long as you know, you know, not to fall for misinformation, disinformation, to always check for the sources, to always check that, you know, what you're seeing is accurate and not saying that I've been perfect. I've fallen for many, you know, headlines that have suggested one thing, but in reality, you know, it turns out to be another. But I think it, what Twitter does offer is that ability to stay up with the news in a very kind of real time and kind of live way that I don't think other platforms do. And TikTok is also great. You know, a lot of people get their news from TikTok now, but at the end of the day, it's also knowing how to kind of consume that information and always, you know, being sort of skeptical about the information that you're being presented and being very intentional about who you follow and knowing that those people are people who are committed to facts and and do kind of so, put out information before they, you know, tweet something, I guess. I'll definitely give you that Twitter is, I think, one of the best ways to get breaking news. I think it, I frankly, I mean, like, for example, take the Pergozin, um when his plane yeah, was taken down yes. over Russia. Like, that I learned through Twitter, through Brian Krasenstein's account, I think, and I also saw the videos and everything like that. I 100% agree. But I don't know, man. I don't know if I agree with it being a value add. I mean, you look at, I mean, just take your case, for example, and, and take somebody like Vivek and take Andrew. Andrew Yang is a little different. We had him on the pod too a little, a little bit ago, but like, it's just, um, we're so much kinder, so much willing to be relational. So yeah, like yeah. if I just, if, if I showed, if I showed my brother who's now starting to become more politically awakened, he's in ninth grade now. And I say like, all right, here are your two models of politics. One is I show an in-person conversation between you and somebody, maybe let's say in the Midwest or in the Iowa caucuses and you're having a conversation with them. I showed them that model of politics. And secondarily, I take the Twitter threads and show that. I mean, like who would you, who would, who would you want your kids to see, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'll also say, I, I, I don't think the, I, I don't think Twitter is real life at all. I, and I don't think a lot of people, like the majority of the country is not on Twitter. I, I think Twitter for me is more useful in terms of kind of narrative shifting and narrative building and sort of like getting that information. Like you kind of have to be strong on Twitter to get that information for better or for worse, I, agree I guess. That. I agree with that. I, I think, I think most people don't operate in the way that Twitter does. And most people, I think the, the biggest mistake I see people kind of the Twitter verse and, and a lot of sort of the influencers on Twitter, like they think what happens on Twitter is also real life, but that's just not the case. And I think that's actually too, for instance, I mean, the Biden campaign's credit in 2020, one of the things that it did, I think very, very well is that, you know, they were on Twitter, but they were really kind of aware and cognizant of the fact that what the conversation on Twitter is, is not the conversation that's happening in say rural Iowa or in Los Angeles or in other um, place. It's more of sort of like DC centric, like people who are just really into the politics, people who are the strongest personalities. But I actually don't know how big of an impact what happens on Twitter has in on ordinary kind of democracy landscape. I think it definitely has an impact on media and politicians and journalists and people who have sort of that platform, but it doesn't really impact, I think what people are thinking of it, you know, my neighbor is thinking of in Chicago. Yeah, I think I think you're a hundred percent right that Twitter is not real life. I mean, Dave Chappelle's a famous quote that says, yes, "Whatever yes, happens yes. at Twitter is not my business." You know, it's it ain't real life. And I think that you know the local store owner down the street has literally could give two shits about what happens yeah. on Twitter, and yet. Right. Where it does seem to start impacting real life is because almost every news show seems to be driven by Twitter narratives or Twitter yeah. news cycles. Because the reason why you're working to change narratives on Twitter is because the media is what picks up yes. what happens on Twitter. And so it, it, I agree with you. It's a separate universe until the media takes that as a mechanism to drive its narrative. And so that's where it starts to actually impact, I think, real people. But I do think that with more kind of diverse young voices on Twitter who have that ability to have a platform, the more they, they do that, I do think that 
media organizations are starting to take a okay not that it's perfect and it's far from where i would like it to be but i do think a lot of the kind of big sort of young influencers on Twitter are beginning to shift what traditional and legacy media do cover. I mean, part of the reason why I call out media, for instance, is not saying that my voice is necessarily shaping or, or changing the narrative, but you know, traditional media has often not really had many stories about young people or not really had a lot of um, you know, segments focused on, you know, the youth electorate. But I think that's starting to change a lot. And and I think, you know, people like Olivia Juliano, who is also a Twitter kind of big person on Twitter, um, my colleague Santiago Mayer, a lot of people on Twitter, I think there's they are starting to get traditional media to change how they cover things, start paying more attention to, to youth related issues, start, you know, paying attention mm-hmm. to these things that might affect young people. And I think in that sense, Twitter, you know, if you can break Twitter, I do think that, and if you can reach the people who you need to reach to reach, reach, I think it can be powerful in that sense. And, you know, it's a slow, it's a very, you know, uphill battle, but I think it can make a difference in terms of the narratives yeah. that you are beginning to see on, you know, TV. Yeah, I think, I think it is right in that if you learn how to master the tool to break narratives or to shift them in your direction. I think it certainly has impact. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. I I, I got to take notes from you in terms of how you're doing it. And I think, frankly, a lot of people that are trying to advocate for work around bridging or listening or talking to each other, I don't think are as effective on Twitter. So I think you're 100% right on that. What I think a lot about is, um, is it is it breaking the strength and quality of our discourse because it seems like if the rule if the goal of twitter is it's a tool and it's and the tool is it's a hammer right it's a hammer to get your narrative through problem is everybody's got this damn hammer so everybody's hammering away charlie kirk is just holds just as strong convictions as you do in terms of how to push his narrative in terms of his thing and so suddenly the problem is that the, the hammer's in everybody's hands, everybody's hammering away, and everybody's got a narrative to shift. And then suddenly to the outside person, it looks like, oh my God, our politics is a never-ending arms race. And so that's yeah. like what I'm wrestling with. That's what I'm wrestling with. Is every, it's a tool, I agree with you, and yet it's making my life so much more difficult because I hear everyday people just gradually by the thousands disengaging because they're like, I can't touch this. And then as you know, I think one of the ways that we slip into authoritarianism is not through a big bang, but through a slump. We slump our way into yeah. it because people just right. disengage. And so that's my concern. I Yes. And I, and I definitely share your concern. And, and I guess I go back to the point where like, you know, I don't know how much, you know, like my, my friend at UCLA or, you know, my, my friend who is in college is really paying attention to the Twitter discourse. But I think as someone who does have that sort of, who does come from, you know, a place of, you know, being informed, I do think it's also up to all of us to have those conversations. And that's why I think Bridge is so important to have those conversations on the ground with people and to make them aware of, you know, like, just basically not to shy away from those in-person conversations. I think a lot of people tend to think that what happens online is, you know, the entire political discourse, but I don't think it is. And I think, you know, at least when I have my conversations with my friends, you know, I think if it, you know, you can just think of yourself as sort of that trusted messenger and you have more influence on them than I think that a lot of people realize. Um, But having those in-person conversations and not sort of succumbing to whatever the narrative is on Twitter and being able to just talk to people in person in real life, I think goes a really long way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it goes to your earlier point of relational organizing. Ultimately, if you want to create the change you want to see, you have to be able to bridge, listen to people across lines of difference. And I think, I mean, you're echoing that a hundred percent. All right. We just talked about Twitter, whether or not it's an impact in real life. We just spent 25 minutes of the conversation on Twitter. So I want to shift a little bit back to you. You mentioned Biden. You mentioned being one of his youngest delegates in 2020. 
Um, yeah. You're obviously a Democrat, and I think a lot of people would immediately say that when they go to your platform. Um, I was recently Victor at an event, and I my my mind goes crazy these days because I'm at events on across the spectrum, and I was at an event yes. in this um, conservative <laughs> conservative comes up to me, he says, you know, um, he's like, man, you know, these Democrats are crazy. How could a young person possibly be a Democrat today? I want you to speak to that person. What was your political story like? Why? Um, what was your awakening? What What is your journey that makes you feel like the Democratic Party for you personally is the right vehicle to build the world that you want to see? Is it for short? Why are you a Democrat? I would say a lot of the reason why I initially started off as a Democrat is because of what I saw with Trump. And so, as as someone who it comes from an immigrant background, as someone who, um, you know, is a young person in society where, you know, you come from a marginalized group, to hear Trump and his rhetoric towards you know, Mexicans and, um, you know, black people was really to me concerning. And and part of the reason why I, you know, at first in 2016 supported Democrats was because I didn't really hear that sort of same rhetoric coming from my congressperson or coming from Hillary Clinton. And then, of course, having to live through those Trump years of, you know, slowly degrading, you know, rules or, you know, these norms that make up our institutions was to me something that I, I, it was more of a repulsion from the Republican Party and seeing the Democrats were sort of the last sort of option. Then in 2020, of course, there were so many great Democratic candidates. But what really appealed me to Joe Biden wasn't necessarily his politics. It was actually his um, ability to get things uh, to like his appeal, his sense of appealing in a bipartisan way of he- coming together mm-hmm. as that candidate who could bring together a kind of divided nation who could bring together a country that was going through so much turmoil um, after the Trump years. I didn't actually think that what he could get done would be kind of what we see now. But I think sort of offering that kind of antidote antidote to Trump, someone who really is compassionate and empathetic and someone who kind of at the end of the day has gone through so much trauma and who who has gone through so much just hardship and who can relate to people on that one-on-one basis. You know, you, you can, you know, question whether or not that is even breaking through, but sort of seeing that kind of alternative to me was um, a large part of the reason why I think I kind of was attracted to the Democratic Party. Now, specifically on policy, I do think that, you know, for me, some of the biggest issues um, are kind of around democracy. And so I think, you know, I started off in politics through um, by looking at the Electoral College and by looking at ranked choice voting and by looking at kind of all these ways that kind of our system has sort of favored or sort of been kind of changed um in a way to to i don't want to say benefit republicans but you talk about gerrymandering to dilute kind of minority voices to me and in finding ways to change that there was only one party that was pushing for that sort of electoral change and it was the democratic party hmm. so i was uh i was sitting in uh cheesecake factory last weekend shout out <laughs> to cheesecake factory of all the places i've been to i will never give up on the cheesecake factory and i was in there with my so sister good. right and we're talking about um abortion and and it was a really complicated conversation we went a lot of different ways and then the question of yeah. biden came up and interestingly enough you know we had a conversation about the 2024 election and i asked her you know what, what do you think about biden and she immediately brought up the question of age and uh, i think you know that that's a concern that a lot of people in our generation have for both candidates and frankly a lot of people in our politics how do you respond to the critique that while President yeah. Biden is an incredibly empathetic person, I think, frankly, um, I would defend that. I think that is true. Just like I told Vivek last week, that I think some of his stuff is accurate on how he thinks about the world. Um, but that being said, how do you respond to the age question? 
I think you have to acknowledge it. Um, you know, no one is forgetting the fact that he's 80 years old. No one is forgetting about the fact that, you know, he does have, you know, occasional stumbles and um, all of that. But whenever I talk about his age, it's okay. Yes, he might be old, but you also have to look at what he's been able to do at 80 years old. I mean, he's he has a record that I think really speaks for itself. Things that, you know, whether or not you disagree with him on his policy, he's doing things that would benefit all Americans that and that past presidents have tried to do, but couldn't do. So you think of, for, for instance, um, a couple of weeks ago, he announced that um, pharmaceutical companies could, or I guess Medicare could start negotiating um, prices for, uh, uh, for, you know, different drugs. And that was something that Trump tried to do, but he couldn't, but Biden was able to do it. You know, think about the infrastructure act, you know, Trump tried to make that with huge part of his administration. He couldn't do it, but President Biden was able to do it. And so I think that sort of record and that sort of experience that he brings really speaks for itself. Now, there's also part of that that just isn't breaking through with young people. And I think that is also um, really concerning. We can totally have that conversation about how we can try to do that. But in terms of age, that's what I try to emphasize. And then also, what's the alternative? I mean, the person who is leading the Republican nomination right now is only three years younger. He's four times indicted, you know, been twice impeached. He faces numerous, you know, felony counts. And I think that sort of alternative, is that really the alternative that you want? And it, I, I know it's dissatisfying to kind of always be thinking about the lesser of the two evils, but that's sort of the, the moment that we find ourselves in right now. And there's, to me, at least only one candidate who, no matter how much you might disagree with him on policy, at least he's there to protect our democracy. At least he follows laws and he respects our institutions and actually tries to make people's lives better. And that, to me, at the end of the day, matters far more than age. And, you know, I, I understand people who are concerned about, you know, his mental capacity and all of that. But you just have to look at what he's been able to do. And I think that speaks volumes. Yeah, I guess the challenge right now is we live in this very disaggregated media environment where affect, emotion, stories have much more resonance than policy victories, right? And I bet that's something that you as somebody that supports and probably bangs your head against the wall because it's like, I can list all these different accomplishments that let's say you might agree with, and yet they don't break through. And so I guess the, the, the curiosity that I hold right now, I could hear a listener thinking through this with me, and they want me to ask this question, which is, all right, you know, let's say he's got some of those policy wins and policy victories. Um, he's 80. There's a real conversation we had about his vice president. And a lot of people find Kamala Harris deeply unpopular um, when you look at polling across the board. And the question then becomes, well, what about the VP ticket? How do you think through that question? Because it is a real consideration to really think through, because he would be the oldest president in the history of the United States. I think part of having someone like Kamala Harris on the ticket is actually to counterbalance some of those concerns about his age. And I, I do agree with you. A lot of people find Kamala Harris um, unpopular. But when you look at sort of the the cross tabs, the groups that find Kamala Harris the most popular are young people and non-whites and women. And I think those, you know, that's the base of the Democratic Party. And for anyone who doubts sort of that power that Kamala Harris brings, all you have to do is look at kind of where she's shown up. I mean, she's now doing this nationwide college tour. She's really investing time and effort to go to, you know, those groups that matter, to go to young people, to listen to them, to to have that conversation with them. And people have been generally enthusiastic. And I think, you know, a lot of people who doubt Kamala Harris, I think, are mostly um, sort of, they exist in that sort of punditry and media landscape. But I, I would actually say that she does bring a sort of um, mm -hmm. vigor and energy to the ticket that Biden couldn't bring alone. And I think the, and it's taken a long time, I think, for this administration to kind of figure out what Kamala is best at sort of and best positioned in terms of tackling you know i would say she wasn't really great on immigration i think that was a very hard sell but when you look at sort of the way that 
the the fiercest way that she's pushed back things like you know the abortion bans things like book banning going to florida and pushing back against ron DeSantis's claim that slavery had some sort of benefit those are the moments that she's the strongest mm -hmm. the moments that she's pushing back directly sort of in the her sort of prosecutor style and i think that's sort of what people really like to see in our politics someone so, who is young diverse who pushes back yeah yeah i mean I think I, I haven't looked at a lot of the crosstabs personally because a lot of our work is less in the partisan realm and the electoral sure. game and much more in how we mobilize people around discourse and dialogue. But I can say from yeah. a lot of personal anecdotal evidence that the excitement just around the Biden-Harris ticket is just a little weak. And and I think there yeah. has to be yeah. some defense yeah. around that. But here, here's, my, here's my sort of like last sort of piece on this, which is when you think about sort of this electoral race and you talk about the lesser of two evils, I think the American people are also just growing exhausted of this constant lesser of two evils, lesser of two evils. I mean, there's basically two issues that the Democrats are banking on in 24, it seems, which is abortion, which is a dark horse issue that I think is going to probably turn on a lot of people for Democrats and Trump. And one of the lines that honestly, I got to give Vivek credit for that he said, I want you to interrogate this. He's like, everybody's running from something. I'm running to something. And I think that's a powerful line. And what do you think the, the Democratic Party right now is running towards? What's the vision? I mean, I, like, what's what's the vision that is not just like we are here so that Trump doesn't exist? I think I think you're I mean, I've been very I, and all, all you have to do is look at sort of this sort of administration's records. I think there are plenty of things that this administration is running to and Democrats are running to on the whole. You think of last week, they established the first ever um, gun violence prevention office and, and some of the things that you see Democrats focused on are, I think, very substantive issues. I mean, gun violence, the number one cause of death among young people. This is an issue that Democrats are fiercely engaged on. And you look at, you know, what's happening in states all across the country. And I think that speaks a lot more about kind of where this party is headed. States like Minnesota, Michigan, Illinois, where they are pushing for, you know, better lives for young people, whether or not, whether that's, you know, uh, gun whether that's creating you know uh more background checks or whether that's banning assault weapons or you know providing free uh breakfast and lunch to to students and in, and in, in, you know high schools and elementary schools those are the things i think this democratic party is running towards it's creating that sort of i know it sounds sort of grand and, and cliche but just a a society in which young people and people don't have to fear for their rights a society in which people can go to the ballot box and, and have, you know, uh, an easy time voting, a society in which you can, you know, be a student, not have to fear for gun violence, a society in which, you know, you can not fear about whether or not climate change is going to, you know, totally ravage your community. I think those are the things that Democrats are really focused on. And mm -hmm. I think it sometimes gets lost in this sort of national discourse. But I just look at, you know, what states like, again, Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania have been able to do with their sort of trifecta um, of, you know, a Democratic state, House, Senate and governorship. And those policies, I think, really represent the best of the Democratic Party. Um, but you don't really often see that happening in D.C., so for anybody joining, Victor, I always make this disclaimer when we get into deep policy stuff, people are like, Manu, why don't you go into the policy? I'm like, because you could watch so many of other Vivek's, uh, Victor's interviews on, on policy. I did the same thing with Vivek. What I'm really curious about is you as the person. Why do you care about what you care about? I think most Americans are just curious about those that are leading us or those that are talking about our politics. Like, what motivates you? What drives you? So. Yes, Victor just talked about a bunch of policy things, and I'm going to leave it at that because you can also go to the Vivek yeah, episode where you can see a lot of the counters. Yeah, go ahead. Here's the, I mean, what what I don't really I mean, I do a lot of podcasts, but I think the way like that sort of philosophy is something I don't really see often. I find it so fascinating is because you do get to humanize these people who you see on sort of out there, and yeah. that's so important. And I think that makes politics a little bit, hopefully, a little bit more appealing to people.
Welcome to the hopeful majority, my friend. Where we, <laughs> yes. where we, where we, where we stay hopeful and optimistic. Yeah. You know, it's funny is. Uh, I, I appreciate you saying that because, I, and this is actually where I want to go back to you as a person, because if you notice, started the conversation, I wanted people to get to understand what drives you. I want to close the conversation with, again, the fact that you are a human. And and speaking of the fact that you are a human, though, in a couple of years, you never know, you know, AI bots get real, real, real uh, prevalent I these know. days. Yes. But, but let's, let's make the assumption that Victor's a human, right? And, and I, I'm listening to this, I'm like, God, this Victor kid, you know, he's so eloquent. He's so smart. He's so interesting. And yet I just can't stand the fact that he supports President Biden in the 2024 elections. Um, talking to that person, what would you say people that critique you that are Republicans or really strong conservatives misunderstand about either you or the Democratic Party? I would say about me personally is that I think a lot of people who see me online or who see me on TV just assume that, you know, I'm another I'm another Democrat that doesn't really engage in, you know, cross political kind of conversation. But I actually, you know, coming from a household in which both of my parents are Republicans, you know, these are the type of things that I think about a lot, which is I do think it's really important to reach out to the other side and listen to what they have to say. I think that's what people, I think a lot of the times just assume that just because I'm a Democrat, I, you know, I, I'm just sort of in my silo, but I actually try a lot to have those conversations with people around me and sure it may not happen on Twitter, but at least just through like talking to Republicans, trying to think what, you know, they think and finding that common ground is something I still deeply believe in um, no matter how sort of polarized our society is whether it's and it starts with I think the people around me I mean I have a conversation with my parents a lot of the times about you know what do you think about what's happening with Trump what do you think about you know they live in Chicago and one of the things that they talk about a lot is you know the crime that is happening in Chicago and some of the headlines they see and I think it would be very easy for me or for you know people online might think that oh I might hear you know what they talk about with crime and just assume that they're misguided and you know we won't even engage in that conversation but I'm actually really I care a lot about you know, thinking about what the other side thinks and meeting them where they are as well. Um, and so I would say that's something that people tend to get wrong. But I I think that sort of, you know, cross political dialogue is is so missing right now and something that I hope that, you know, one, one by one, we can sort, sort of bring back. I mean, I can certainly say, brother, you're 21 and you're, you're extraordinarily humble. And, and it's something I would you know, anybody that's listening to this, and I talk to a lot of political leaders and all types of these folks. And again, I maintain a lower profile, but now again, forcibly, I'm getting out there too, because we got to shape narratives, we got to use that Twitter hammer. But I, I would say like, you know, the conversation you and I just had where I asked very direct questions, like, do you think your Twitter persona is the same as your in-person persona? What do you think the Democrats are getting wrong? You're responding to these questions in really productive ways. And I think it's important for people to know that people like you that they think are, are are promoting certain things, give people a chance to explain. Yeah. And I think we aren't giving people the chance to be better. And I don't think we're giving people the second chance to show that they might have something of value to offer. So here's the other piece I would just ask you, which is you mentioned your relationship with your parents. You mentioned that they're Republicans, you're a Democrat. You talk about things like the Chicago um, violence issues and the fact that you have to, you know, talk to them about some of those challenges. How how are your conversations with your parents like? And and like, what advice would you give to somebody that probably has a, you know, politically challenging family where they might be on one side of the issue and the other person might be on the other side? How have you navigated those conversations? I I I definitely think. Um, for, for me and my parents, one of the things is, you know, not making it um, a constant thing. I think, I think it becomes very exhausting to, to, to try to think that, you know, you can talk about it every single day and not be exhausted just because they're your parents. For me, how I approach it is, you know, sometimes I'll just mention, you know, like, hey, like, 
you know, did you see this Trump indictment or, hey, like, you know, I, I know this is an issue. Do you want to talk about this? And I think at the end of the day, sort of listening and hearing about what they have to say and then kind of going back to our, kind of our previous conversations, I don't think it's different the fact that it's my parents. I think maybe it's better because I, I view my sort of kind of role in that a little bit more seriously in the fact that I am a trusted messenger, I think, for my parents. And mm. I think I have more of an ability to persuade them on sort of different issues and present a side that maybe they never considered. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's still my goal to persuade them to change totally on, right. you know, thinking that, you know, Chicago violence is out of hand. I mean, like what they see on TV is valid. And they oftentimes tell me like, well, you don't live here. And so you don't understand the reality. And I say, sure, I might not live here, but here's also the data. And I'm just presenting this data to you. And it's your choice whether or not you want to take this. But here's what's happening. I mean, Chicago is not the only city where it's happening. You also have deep red pockets that this is also happening in. And so, you know, I understand your concern, but this is also part of the reality. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's not my position, I think, um, to change their worldview. It's, I do think it's easier for me to do that because I'm their son and hopefully they can listen to me more so than, you know, the person who's on TV. But I, I just don't think it's productive for anyone to think that they can go into a conversation and be that sort of white knight and just totally change mm. the way that someone thinks about it. It's a very gradual thing. It took a long time for my parents to go from supporting Donald Trump in 2016 to not end up, you know, supporting him right now. It's a slow thing of slowly saying, oh, wow, well, like, that comment toward Asian Americans during the pandemic was concerning. No one should be calling, you know, the China, the, the, you know, the coronavirus, the China virus or the Kung flu. That's just acceptable. And slowly they begin to see this pattern, but it's something that doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's something that I always remind myself is even though I'm their son, even though I am that trusted messenger for them, it's a process and it's gradual and it's a journey for, to get them to where they are now. And and also not every conversation across a line of difference has to have the end goal or success metric be that you change their mind. I mean, right. you also just learn a lot about your own perspective yes. and your own background. I think that's that's demonstrable of it. I, what's your advice to to parents that might have kids that have different political values than them? How, how have your parents sort of continued to support you um, in all the amazing work you're doing? Like, what would your advice be to a parent that's listening to this? And they're like, I have a young Victor as well, you know? What's what's your take on that? What would your advice be to them? I'll, I'll reiterate kind of what I what I said earlier, which is, I mean, first, like not rushing toward imposing your political ideology on them. I think it's really important just for let to let your kid, you know, develop, you know, what they're interested in and to go down that path. I don't think there's any problem with, you know, for example, my parents often ask me, you know, are you sure you want to go into this politics? Are you sure you believe in these causes? But I, I think, you know, it's very great for parents to make sure that, you know, what their, you know, child believes in is is truly what they believe in and, and offering them, you know, counter viewpoints. But I if your child really it does have political different political ideologies, um, you know, compared to you, I would say, you know, just sort of accepting that and and, you know, not demonizing them in any way, not sort of attacking them in any way. You know, having that constructive dialogue, I think, is very important. And, you know, often, you know, asking them, you know, what do you think about this? Or, you know, have you ever considered this? But never mm -hmm dismissing them for what they're doing. Because I think for any young person who is in our world, you know this, I mean, it, it's hard to get people to care about politics. And if people care about politics, I think at the end of the day, they do it because they really care about it. And, you know, they do it because they hope that their, you know, voice can hopefully change things or them being involved can change things. And I think for parents to impose their sort of viewpoint on them or for them to attack their child just because they have different political viewpoints, it could end up actually making them, you know, less kind of attached to politics. And um, we don't want that, I think. Do you ever like wake up at night and be like, oh my God, I might be wrong. Do you ever like question 
your beliefs or your certitude towards certain causes or towards issues or policies? Um, is there ever no. like a moment where I'm like, oh my God, I might actually be wrong on this. I, I don't do you feel like you've got a down pat. I, 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 nothing wakes me up like in the middle of the night, but I mean, I do often, like, okay. I think a lot of my viewpoints do, do shape based off of what I've read, you know, through, like, I, I try to consume information from both sides of the spectrum. And I think a lot of the times, like, maybe I might think of things differently, but nothing where I'm like, oh, shoot, like, I'm, you know, doing the wrong thing or like I'm, I'm fighting for, on like the wrong side of things. That doesn't really happen much, but I would say mm -hmm. it's my issues, like I, I do ch like slowly, you know, I might think of things in a different way and that sort of like slowly reshapes and rethinks sort of how I look at the world, but nothing where it's like, oh, like I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the wrong kind of side of things. Yeah. I, I put myself Victor over the last year through this, like intellectual gymnastics course basically where i like read oh my god i read everything i read everything from one side the other side up down yep. middle and i i think one of my weak points and this is something i would i would critique people that are doing bridging work is i think when you're so focused on relationship building when you're so focused on reaching people that might disagree with you um sometimes i struggle to actually try to understand what do i actually believe because i do believe in empathy yeah. i do believe in understanding i do believe in reaching somebody i care more about your story oftentimes than my story but sometimes what that puts me in a position of is like uh, i don't actually sometimes know and it's it's hmm. it's this weird yeah. process i'm wrestling with where i'm trying to balance having intellectual humility and having a desire to reach people across difference and seeing your story and seeing the truth that you believe is true and at the same time having my own convictions and it's a journey I'm on. And I don't, do you have any advice for that? Like, how, how do you think, how do you think one should navigate that? Because I, I, I don't think I'll ever just my temperament is I don't, I don't think I'll ever have policy convictions that are as strong as yours. Um, hmm. uh, I might on some things, but it, I don't think that's going to be the case. I do have very strong convictions about how we should show up in society, how we should behave, how we should be democratic. Um, so what would your advice be to someone like me that, you know, just sometimes doesn't know what to believe, you know, like what, how do you navigate that? I mean, I, I don't think it's ever, and there, there's a flip question of it to you, which is like, yeah. you very strongly believe, but you also want to maintain a degree of intellectual humility to maybe see, you might be wrong on something. Like, how do you walk those balances? I mean, it's a great question. I, I, I don't know if I have a very satisfying answer to that, but I like, for me, at least I, I, I often think about you know, it's very hard, I think, to separate your convictions from, you know, like putting that aside and truly listening to someone. And I, and I also don't think it's a bad thing to have convictions yourself. I mean, it takes, I think, a while, yep. but like, I think being able to separate those two, I think is actually a really important skill that not a lot of people have. I think a lot of people just assume that their convictions are automatically another person's convictions or um, ideologies, but to be able to truly kind of put yours aside for a minute and to understand kind of the other person's is something that I think is very admirable. Um, um, I actually could get better at that. I think a lot of the times is, you know, like I have very strong beliefs on certain issues. And um, as much as I try to, you know, um, listen to people and have those conversations, I do find, you know, sometimes I, I'm not able to separate it as much as I hope to. Um, but I don't know. I, I just think it's, I think we can all be, we can all have opinions. I mean, I, I think that's just what it means to be human. And, and, you know, a lot of the way that the media presents itself right now is very neutral and, and, you know, quote unquote objective, but I don't think it's wrong to have an opinion on just basic 
you know, things that make up our democracy, things like having free and fair yeah. elections, things like facts, things, you know, those things I think are okay to like have free speech, free speech, right. Those I think are, are totally fine. And, and, you know, sure, maybe the policy areas are a little bit um, grayer and, and require a little bit more thought, but I think it's okay to have that opinion and to express those opinions. But knowing that at the end of the day, if, you know, if, if it's your job to show up in those spaces as, you know, the bridger or the person who does connect, knowing how to separate that from you know your your convictions, which I think you are able to do quite well, um, I think is a very good thing. All right, uh, one last question came to mind while you're talking about how you show up in these spaces. And I'm going to ask you the last question that we ask everybody, from politicians to celebrities to amazing people like you to random people, everybody. But before that question, um, I just want to ask you. You know, I, let's say I'm a young person. I'm listening to this. I'm hearing your perspective. I'm hearing your takes, and I. One is I'm just curious how, like, what is your advice to me about, you know, the work that you're doing? But secondarily is how do you have the, not necessarily confidence, but sort of this sense of self-assuredness and, and a sense of sort of security within yourself to not get hurt by all the incoming? Because politics is is tough, man. And I, yeah. I know how difficult it can get. And I'm sure there's moments where, and I mean, you're, you're young and you're 21, you know, friend groups can get compromised and, you know, relationships can get challenged and your entire life is out there. How do you navigate all that? And what's your advice to somebody young that's just, um, just, just curious about how you got to where you are today and how you developed that sort of sheet or sort of shield of armor? Yeah, so I'll talk about the first question um, first. I would say for anyone listening to this who might be curious about how they can get involved, I would say, you know, there's so much of politics and, and as you know, the theme of this podcast has shown is really messy. I, I think what happens in DC is oftentimes very, um, you know, sensationalized and people talk about politics in these big and grand terms and there's a lot, it's very polarized. But I would say, you know, at least for me, the the, the moments where I'm most hopeful is taking a step back and looking at what's happening in my community and looking at what's happening on the local and state level. And that's sort of the area where I wish that we had more emphasis on sort of like getting young people to care about politics in that sense. Like mm. sure DC might be exciting and, and you know, that's where all the action is happening, but there's also just take a look at what's happening in your community and find ways to get involved on that level um, because things can happen at much quicker pace. You can make a much bigger difference and things can actually happen. And that's what I think is, you know, the most rewarding part about politics is that, you know, you make your voice heard and you see the change that you want to see happen. And that's much easier to be done, I think on a state and local level. And we don't often talk about those levels as much as we do what's happening in DC and the federal. So I think just sort of take, taking a step back, looking at how you can contribute in your local district, that makes, I think, for a much better experience in politics. But for me and, and for anyone who's in this political system and who, you know, is, has a lot incoming, I would say first, you know, there's a sense of, I think, just knowing, separating, like what I said before, like separating the people who constructively want to make your work better and the people who just are sort of you know exist and who attack you just because they want to attack you and i often think about you know i, I watched um Brene brown a couple of years ago and one of the, my favorite quotes from her is often thinking about the people who are in the arena and the people who aren't in the arena and you know there are plenty of cheap seats in this world who will just hurl criticism at you constantly the people who are on twitter who are on social media who are always there saying you know this is so stupid you're just um you know you're another um you know chinese communist party spy versus the people who actually are there to make your work better and and i think always sort of sit reminding like ask yourself 
which of the two it is, I think is, is has helped me sort of stay grounded and know, you know, not to get caught up in the noise and not to get caught up in the people who are attacking me and, and, you know, really focus on the people who are there to make it better. And, you know, the people whose opinions I really value. And I think having that list of people, and, and I think friends are really important of having a list of people you can go to and ask them, you know, you know, what do you think of what I did here, you know, and tell me honestly, I think that really helps um, me stay grounded and and stay sort of true to myself um, and not get caught up in that sort of noisy, polarized world out there that just seeks to, you know, shut people down and, and, and you know, hurl criticism and attacks. Next time somebody calls you a Chinese Communist Party spy, you send them my way. You send them. We'll, we'll take care of that. You know, it's so it's it just it just speaks to the stupidity of our politics. And though I would say that Victor, to I mean, to your point though, like you're you are somebody in the arena. Teddy Roosevelt has a has a quote on this too of the man yes. in the arena and the, the fact that yes, you're bloodied and yep. yet. That's the purpose. Uh, last quick thing, because I know uh, we're we're short on time, which is I always ask everybody. What is your why? I think having the answer to the why, President Biden actually talks a lot about this, which is, you know, a sense of purpose, a sense of belief in what you're doing gets you through a lot of those hardships. He talks about how it got him through his hardship with losing his his family early on. Um, what is your why? What, what Why do you do what you do? I think because we live in such a complicated and messy world where there's so much polarization, there's so much just attacking each other. And, and I or, and I long to go back to a reality where, you know, you can disagree civilly and, you know, still be able to go out for drinks and, um, you know, where we can live in a media environment in which facts really mattered, in which, you know, you can disagree on opinions maybe, but at least you agreed on facts. And that's why I'm in sort of, I, I do a lot of communication work. Um, I do a lot of, you know, media stuff is to hopefully provide that sort of light and facts and to hopefully go back to that reality where, you know, you can, you know, talk about politics, it could be fun, but, and still be human at the end of the day and, you know, look at each other um, in sort of a human way and and not immediately dismiss the other person. But I think we live in such a polarized world and, and country and to hopefully go back to a place where we can see that sort of unity that defined our country um, during moments like 9-11, I think is part of the reason why I do the work that I do. Where can people find your podcast? Um, so really anywhere. So it's, we're on YouTube, um, at youtube.com slash Politicon, but also, um, all over Apple podcasts, Spotify, um, wherever you what is it called? your podcast. It's called iGen Politics. iGen Politics, people. Victor Shi, thank you for gracing the whole majority, sir. Thank you for having me on, Manu. It's so great to see you. Thank you so much to Victor for joining the Hopeful Majority. I hope you enjoyed that conversation because we went everywhere from Biden to Trump to Victor's upbringing to his relationship with his parents. I really appreciated the way that he showed up in that conversation. And as you know, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple would love your reviews on, on Spotify and Apple would love your likes and subscribes on YouTube. We need the feedback. We need all of us to build this Hopeful Majority. I'll see you on next week's episode.